Hi, I'm Vivian. And I'm Justin. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Le Fonds de Recherche de Québec and powered by Nero, the next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself who are trying to navigate through the ultra competitive and challenging world of academia. Today's episode is going to be all on stress. I'm sure one we can relate to very much. Uh, I feel so stressed right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we have with us Rebecca Cernick. She is a master's student and researcher at the Center for Studies on Human Stress at the University of Montreal. And we'll also have a special appearance by her supervisor, the director of the Center for Studies on Human Stress, Sonia Lupien. Our mentor. So this uh, in this episode, we'll be really exploring how what stress is, what's the difference between stress and anxiety, the relationship between a stressful life event and co-rumination, all that beautiful stuff that we experience every single day of our lives. And we'll talk to you about what co-rumination is because there is a lot of jargon when it comes to talking about stress as a scientific subject. So here is Rebecca Cernick. Well, hello. Um, we have today Rebecca. We're so excited to have you on our podcast. Um, we, you know, we've been talking about stress and mental health throughout this whole podcast. And you are a stress researcher. That's your specialty in psychiatric sciences. And so we're so glad to have you as a as a master student offer your perspective um, on this issue. Um, yeah. So we enjoy starting our podcast with a question that we like to ask all our guests. And so the question is: Think back to before COVID, uh, what would you be doing on a Friday night? So kind of give, get us a, give us a little window into what your normal life or what your Friday night would look like. Um, usually uh, I live with my partner. So usually Friday is our day where we like to decompress from the week because we're pretty busy. He, he works as a chemist. So when he comes home from work, you know, just like to relax, decompress from the week, um, you know, hang out on the couch, enjoy a nice dinner maybe a glass of wine and just not not do anything crazy you know just take the time to relax and then and then we have the whole weekend ahead of us so great so lots of de-stressing yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your research in particular yeah so my research is on um, I actually collaborate with Audrian I know that you interviewed her uh, not that long ago so her project really works with anxiety in children and adolescents so when I came into Sonia Lupien's lab and I was thinking about different projects that I could embark on for my master's, um, I was discussing with Audrian and, and we had this, this click and we realized that, you know, this is something that I was really interested in as her project and that together we could collaborate and I could work within her project. Um, and something that interested me was co-rumination, which is mm-hmm. not exactly like rumination, but it's with a friend, like let's say you have a problem, let's say you're your boyfriend or your friend is something a little bit weird and you're like, well, why did she do that? Why did he do that? And you're kind of thinking of all of the reasons why it happened or what mm-hmm. happened because of that. Um, and co-rumination is when you go to a, a friend and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. You know, why do you think this happened? What what are all the consequences of this behavior? And I feel so sad and really mad about the situation. Mm-hmm. So it, it really involves like talking without end about a problem and how bad you feel about that problem. So there's studies that show that coordination is actually associated with anxiety. So I knew that literature, and then I met Ulrian, and we had this 
idea to collaborate together that I could study co-rumination within her large study looking at anxiety in uh, children and adolescents. Mm. And how do you study that? Do you bring children and adolescents in and get them to um, like have a session of co-rumination and, and see how that affects them? In our study in particular, there was already questionnaires that were being administered. Uh, it was already a study that was ongoing, and it was okay. through questionnaires that were administered to uh, to the young kids. Um, so there's a co-rumination questionnaire that we use, but there's also some studies that use a protocol where you can induce co-rumination in the laboratory. Okay. Uh, but we use a questionnaire. Interesting. Very cool. And where are you from, Rebecca? Are you from Montreal? Yeah, I'm from Montreal. I was uh, born and raised in St. Lazare. And then okay. uh, three years ago, I moved to the island of Montreal because it's, it's a lot closer for university. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and why stress research? Why did you decide to go in this field? I would say my experience or love for the brain and, and mental health and stress started in SAGEP. I, took a, I was in um, arts and science program, the Double Deck at John Abbott, mm-hmm. and I took a human brain class. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't really have any expectations going in. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll try the class, see how it is, and see if I have any interest for it. And I fell in love. The teacher was also incredible. And his passion, I believe he was a psychiatrist also, and his passion for the brain and all things mental health was, was really contagious. And so since that day, I knew that I would want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during my bachelor's at Concordia in behavioral neuroscience, I really you know, explored that passion further. And I realized that mental health was something that was, again, just furthered my passion. Um, and I took a class on stress. The title was just stress. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, this sounds really interesting. And it was like deja vu with my Seja class. I was like, wow, this is incredible. I love it. And we explored all aspects of stress um, and how, you know, it incorporates into all aspects of daily life. And then because I had that little like seed planted in my head, I was like, okay, let me explore this a little bit more. Um, so looking just on Google, you know, typing like stress research Montreal, I happened upon Sonia. For and sure. I just seeing her speak and communicate and just her ease with the public was so engaging. And yeah. I knew that, you know, from watching a few of her videos, I was like, that's who I want to work with. Mm. Absolutely. She's the star. She's the queen of stress here in Quebec (laughs) and our dear mentor. And, um, you know, her research is really uh, unbelievable, but her facility, her ability to talk about her research to the public is really something that is astounding. Mm -hmm. She really is able to communicate, you know, all these complex stress um, all this complex stress science into easy ways of understanding. Like uh, she talks yeah. about the, is it the rhinoceros? No, it's not the rhinoceros. Mam- mammoth. mammoth. The mammoth as a metaphor for, to explain stress. Could you, you know, give us a little definition of what stress is after all? Because we talk about it a lot, but do we actually know what it is? Yeah, um, I think that a common, before addressing your question, I think that a common misconception of what stress is, is being pressed for time. Mm -hmm. Like often, I know that Sonia always talks about it, when you type in stress on Google and you go in the images section, you'll see people like, you know, putting their hand on their head and you see like a clock somewhere in the background and people feel pressed for time. But in actuality, stress, there's a recipe for stress. And I think that Sonia has probably mentioned to you as well, it's the acronym we like to use is nuts. So don't go nuts with stress. 
And it, the acronym NUTS is, breaks down into four elements. So we have novelty. So if something, a situation is new, uh, let's say you're going for a job interview, obviously that's a novel situation, so it could be stressful. We have U, which stands for unpredictability. So you don't know if something's going to happen. There's so you're not sure what to expect when you're going into a situation. Mm -hmm. uh, the T, which stands for threat to your ego. So let's say if you know a colleague mentions something at the when I'm going to get coffee at the coffee machine in the morning and it threats and threatens my ego, that could be stressful for me. And the S would be a sense of low control. So if I feel like that's the key, if I feel like I have a low sense of control over a situation. Um, for example, if, if I'm going somewhere and I feel like I don't have control over that particular situation, then that could also be stressful for me. Mm -hmm. So those four elements make up what stress is. And the more elements you have of the NUTS acronym in a situation, the more stressed you'll be. Right. Yeah, I read Sonia's book and that really stuck out to me as a very practical way to break down stress. Um, and I, I know she talked about when you don't, when you have a stress that you can't really pinpoint, it's actually helpful to have someone talk you through, uh, or even break down for yourself, like what are those nuts factors and figure out strategies to help tackle each of those factors. Um, and so a question for you, because I'm now thinking about how that relates to core rumination is how do you differentiate between co-ruminating with a friend versus emotional emotional processing or actually helpful uh, processing with a friend where they're helping you kind of work through what's making you stressed. And, and, and um, yeah, you know, I think we all know that t talking to a friend can be helpful. So how would you, how would you draw the line between those two kinds of processing? Um, I think that the line can be drawn where co-rumination is really where both friends are encouraging every detail of the problem to be uh, to be talked about in a way that's not solution driven. Mm. You're really going to focus on how how bad you feel, and your friend is going to encourage you to keep talking about, oh yeah, how bad does this make you feel? You know, how negative do you feel because of this problem? So I would say the difference is really to focus on the negative feelings that the problem makes you feel, yeah. and really that you know you're talking softly without end about this problem. So I think that's where you have the difference between you know talking it out with a friend, you know, trying to arrive at a solution to make you feel better, whereas co-rumination is really, like, extensively focusing on the negative and not going toward the solution. So it, so if your friend is, uh, you know, how do you know if your friend is not helping you out? You know, mm -hmm. you're talking with a, a friend <laughs> at a coffee shop or something, and you're just both talking about your stressful issues. And you go back and forth into this loop and it just makes you feel worse. Or how do you know mm. that that friend is maybe not the right person to talk to? Is there a specific kind of conversation that you're supposed to look for to make you feel better in these stressful situations? I think that you could definitely look out for, you know, if someone's egging you on, encouraging you to keep talking about it. Let's say... You know, another aspect of co-rumination is that you only talk about the problem instead of doing other activities. So let's say, you know, you're meeting with a friend at a coffee shop and afterwards you have plans to go, you know, obviously after COVID, you have yeah. plans to go to a party. Um, but your friend, you know, says, oh, you know, we can stay a little bit longer. We can talk a little bit longer about X, Y, Z, you know. I think that if you start seeing that your friend is encouraging you, you know, to keep talking about it, and also if... You know, if you if you it's totally all right to say, you know, this situation makes me feel upset or or sad or anything like that. But I think that if you keep um, focusing on those negative feelings to a point where it's 
it's exhaustive, it's really repetitive, I think that's when you're, um, those are the signs that you should look for, definitely. Mm. And what do studies show uh, as the effects of co-rumination? What, what does someone who co-ruminates a lot uh, have? I know you said higher, higher rates of anxiety, is that correct? And what, what other signs uh, or effects does it have? I think it's, it's really important to note that we don't, it's not like a cause and effect relationship. Like a lot of the studies have looked at associations. Right. Um, so co-rumination could lead to X as well as X could lead to co-rumination. So further studies really need to explore like the, the directionality of the relationship. Um, but a lot of studies have looked at a depression, the uh, association between coordination and depression. Yeah. And lesser studies have looked at anxiety. Um, but I think it's also important to note that there are some positive aspects to coordination um, because, you know, you are talking with a friend about how you feel. So mm-hmm. you can feel like you're really close to your friend because, you know, you're saying, I'm discussing all my problems. I feel really connected up. to this person. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of like there's maladaptive but also adaptive aspects to it. Right. Um, yeah. And then what is the difference between stress and anxiety? I heard you mention both terms. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about the difference? I think that the key difference to keep in mind is the location of your mammoth. Right. Uh, go back to the term mammoth. That's our favorite word at the lab. Um, <laughs> it's really the location of the mammoth. So with stress, your mammoth is right in front of you. You're facing it head on. Whereas anxiety, it's the mammoth is in your head. And it's also anticipatory. So it's not, with anxiety, the mammoth isn't in front of you. It's, you know, it could be two days from now. It could be tomorrow. And you're just anticipating that threat. Mm. So stress is like, okay, uh, I have a danger in front of me. I'm going to run away. That's a stressful, that's a stress response. And, And anxiety is, I don't see any danger, but I could be in my bed and just think about possible dangers that may occur tomorrow and you just feel stress. So you have the same psychological, physiological symptoms in both cases, but it's really the target of where that stress comes from. Yeah, exactly. And Sonia even refers to, um, you know, anxiety as being a a super threat detector in the sense that you're always, you know, you're anticipating it. So you're, you know, you're aware of the threat when it occurs. So you're just always on like high alert. But yeah, the, the key difference is really the location of your mammoth. All right. And uh, Sonia talks a lot about how stress is not inherently bad or evil. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on, on why that is? Why is stress not always bad? <laughs> well, if we think about back to, again, Sonia talks about this all the time, but it's, it's so true when you think about, you know, prehistoric time, if we didn't have a stress response, we, we wouldn't be here, you know? We needed to have our stress response to recognize that I either need to fight this mammoth or, you know, to get out of here. And the safest option in that case was to get out of here. But if we didn't have that response, you know, mm. I wouldn't have that response to be like, hey, I need to do an action right now. You would just stand there and, you know, the rest is history. So I think that it's so important for our survival. And also there's, there's beneficial aspects of having a stress response. You're going to be more alert you know, you're going to be more focused. And so it's not only negative aspects. It, it can really bring you, like, if we think of going to an exam, there's an inverted U-shaped curve to a stress response. You can either be on the side where it's, you know, there's way too much stress and it can affect you badly. 
or it can affect you in a negative way rather, or you have the other side where you know you need a little bit of stress to perform well. Mm-hmm. And if you're way too low on your stress, then you're not going to perform as well either. So it's really to it's obtain like, the optimal amount in the U, you know, the highest point of the U to be able to perform at your best. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's really interesting because if I think about who's listening to our podcast, it's these grad students who I think we endure a lot of kind of stress or anxiety and whether it's comprehensive exams or meetings with our supervisors. Uh, how would you, what kind of practical tip would you give to a grad student who feels very stressed and anxious? How would you help them work through what is healthy and good stress and what is not so healthy and kind of ways to, to manage or find that balance? I think that one of the best pieces of advice I could give is to really change the way that we see stress, you know, to recognize that when we see all these images on on Google or, you know, even on social media where stress is always portrayed as this negative thing and it can only be negative. And I think that to change the way that we see our stress and, you know, the mindset that we have about stress can really be helpful. And to think of, you know, if, if you have a situation that could be potentially um, stressful coming up, you can say, this is not a stress, it's a challenge. So to really mm-hmm. put yourself on the good side of the inverted view, to be like, I know I'm going to live potentially a stress response in this situation, but I know that I need a certain amount of stress hormones to perform well. So I think that if, you know, you start to view stress as more as a challenge, less so than this dangerous, scary thing. Mm. I think that that would help you go through experiences. I like um, that. Like the change of perspectives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about that in other episodes, but the yeah. change of perspectives. How do you rethink that situation in a way that is not detrimental to you? And that's something that you can adapt to, absorb to, and you know, understand better. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was thinking... Your personal experience, I'm sure you went through stressful experiences in your life, exams. Does, did your research in stress help you out with your personal stress? Oh, definitely. Really? That's <laughs> the awesome. The things that we learn, um, you know, through our readings or even when we watch Sonia give her, you know, conferences. And I have the unique opportunity to, to translate Sonia's conferences um, okay. from French to English. So I get... You know, I get to see her conferences, I get to see the content in it, and it's extremely helpful. It, her, you know, her techniques to help manage stress are as applicable to the general public as they are to me. You know, we're all yeah. human. Um, so one of the things that I, I love to do is I love to sing, mm. not only because I have a passion for music, but it helps with our stress response or even belly breathing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they all activate your diaphragm, so they act to slow down your stress response. So it sounds kind of like, you know, very simplistic, like, oh, yeah, just go sing a song and you know, do some belly breathing. But these techniques really do work. Yeah. And she so also, I definitely use them throughout yeah. my graduate studies. That's awesome. She also mentioned laughing. So going on uh, a ridiculous website sometimes. or Just for laughs. Just for laughs or <laughs> just yeah, laughing at something or going for a walk. You know, these are simple solutions, but they have a huge impact. You know, I I didn't know that before reading the book. I'm like, okay, everyone talks about going for a walk if you're stressed, but they do have scientific data backing, backing it up. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, those are the things that you have to do. You have to go, you can't take it lightly. People are like, it doesn't work and they just don't do it. And they just start ruminating and they stare in their room or they're in their house and they start, you know, feeling anxious and it could lead to a panic attack and lead to all kinds of different things before it becomes 
dangerous or very, um, you know, negative, you have to use these simple tools that, that, that Sonia is offering, that Rebecca here is offering. Is it's really going for a walk, laughing, belly breathing, <laughs> singing. Is there anything else that you can add to that? Um, I would say even praying, like laughing, singing, uh, belly breathing, it's, it's all centered around the same concept is that you're activating your diaphragm. So you're really acting to slow down that stress response. So even if you're, you know, you're praying, it's, it's doing the same thing as singing. So let's say you're not a big singer, you could always pray in it. It has the same effect, but I really wanted to go back to your um, point where you said about just, just moving, you know, mm-hmm. you, you have all of this energy that's building up when you have your stress response, all, all this mobilized energy, and you need to evacuate it. Yeah. So one of the best ways, you know, to evacuate that energy is really to move. And that's also something that I have, you know, with the pandemic and, and where your home is also your workspace, it's a little bit harder to, you know, to remember that, that it is important to get out of the house and really move. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the last, in the last few weeks, I've really, you know, remembered that, Hey, you know, when I go for a run after a stressful meeting or, you know, after having a long day of, of writing, I need to go liberate all of that energy. I need to go for a run. I need to, you know, do a home workout. It really, really helps. Right. And one tip that keeps on coming up in our podcast episodes as well is having a strong support network Mm -hmm. and being able to have people to reach out to. Um, so talking to a friend and maybe you want to add some qualifiers. Now I'm thinking about your research and co-ruminating of choosing good friends <laughs> to <Yeah>. talk to <laughs> who will help you work towards solutions and right. help you emphasize um, the, the good parts. You know, even yesterday I I was talking to my friend and, and I was telling her a bit about things that were causing me a bit of anxiety this week. And she said, Vivian... Well, can you tell me some things that you are grateful for? And now thinking about it, I'm like, wow, that is a really good tactic as a friend to, yeah. you know, and, and, and maybe Rebecca would love to hear some of strategies from you as, as a friend. How would you uh, help someone work through, uh, you know, a, a difficult situation? Yeah. yeah. What are some strategies um, in, in those conversations, you think? Um, I think just to be, to not guide your friend, again, I keep coming back to coordination, but not to guide your friend in any specific direction, you know, just to, to let them talk and, and to let them know that you're there for them and, and to really not just, again, like encourage them in a negative direction mm-hmm. or to really harp on negative emotions. So I think just to let them express themselves, let them know that you're there for them. And that also, if they're looking for solutions or they're looking for resources, help your friend, you know, try to find those resources, whether it be, um, you know, to, to read a scientific book to help them with, you know, one of Sony's books to help them understand their stress, their anxiety, whether it be to go consult a psychologist, mm-hmm. um, different things like that. So I think supporting your friend and helping them find resources if they feel alone or they feel like they can't do it themselves. Yeah. I feel like two brains or even, you know, three brains working in a solution is, is, can be better than one if, if one is struggling to find them. Yeah, I really like what you said about not guiding them in a specific direction, because sometimes we can go in either extreme. We can either try too hard to cheer them up and say, oh, everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. And you just got to do X, Y, Z. Or, yeah. you know, we can co-ruminate and go the other way and just really um, exaggerate the negative parts. So I really like what you said about creating that safe space for them to express themselves. And maybe like take turns. Yeah. You know, like one day one friend can be the one talking and the other one supporting. And the other day it's you know, vice versa, because, you know, if both of both friends are just, you know, talking about their negative situations, it might be, 
you know, not good, as you were saying, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to come back also, you know, we're living through a pandemic. We're living in mm -hmm. something that is totally new to many of us, um, COVID-19. It's something that is very stressful. We feel isolated. We out feel, of control. That's yeah, one of the nuts factors. Yeah. Got, <laughs> you know, the government is telling us to do this and then not to do this. And it's going back and forth and people are tired and they are super stressed out in general. But I think it's just like a year of being stressed out. Mm -hmm. But Sonia is uh, saying in an interview that we're, we're, we're capable as humans to face, you know, COVID-19. We went through worst. So how, Rebecca, what's, what's your take on this? What's your perspective on how we're adapting ourselves to, to the current challenge of COVID-19? I mean, I definitely agree with Sonia in that, you know, we faced so many challenges and we've had to adapt so much as a species yeah. that this is just another one of those examples is that we're totally capable of adapting. And I think that, you know, through that adaptation will definitely come out. Um, stronger. Mm -hmm. And we have all of the resources to be able to do that. Our, our body and brain are able to do that and do that adaptation. So I think that we just need to let ourselves do that process. Right. So just live through it or <laughs> close our eyes and wait for it to be over. <laughs> because it's really hard to imagine, you know, we always talk about back in the day, prehistoric times or whatever, we adapted ourselves you know, we know that we're capable of that. Our bodies, our brains are capable of that. But we never lived through an experience that, so, so a worldwide experience like this, where we're actually actively adapting ourselves. Mm. So I don't know, do we, do we just say it's normal if people are stressed out? Um, what, do we, what do we do? Um, I think that, I think it's a loaded question, definitely. Yeah. But I think that it's important to, to not suppress our emotions, to accept that it's okay if today I don't feel 100%. I don't feel at my best. It's important to live through our emotions and to not try to say, oh, you know, I'm feeling this negative emotion, don't want to deal with it, pushing it on the side. Mm -hmm. To really live through what we're feeling. Um, yeah, and just, I, I think that that's really important. And um, I totally lost my train of thought. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe on a more, more on a more personal note, uh, what were some of the challenges that you faced in the pandemic, and what were some ways that you had to adapt or change your strategies uh, as you as you experienced COVID nineteen personally? Um, I think that in my case, I fell into the trap of working way too many hours and mm -hmm. not um, giving my body and brain and and mind what it what it needs to relax and to recover, you know, from working and you know, doing long days and, and stuff like that. And so I, I quickly became, you know, overwhelmed by all of the things I had to do for the rest of my master's. And it really, you know, it reminded me that I'm, I'm looking up at this huge mountain of things I need to finish before my master's. And of course, when you're standing at ground level and you're looking at a, at a huge mountain, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, how in the world am I going to get to that top of that mountain? Right. Mm -hmm. But what we don't necessarily realize when we're overwhelmed is that you're going to take breaks as you're climbing the mountain. You're going to stop at different viewpoints. You're going to stop to drink water, to stretch, eat a snack. So it's not, I don't have to get to the top in one day. Love so that. I think that to take a step back and, and to remember that mm. is something that really helped me kind of break the cycle of, I don't need to do 12-hour days to be successful or to finish my master's. I need to recover. I need to 
you know, take time for myself. And it even got to the point where I was writing it in my agenda, go for a walk, you know, <laughs> yeah. do a workout, eat a snack. Yeah. I, because I feel like if it was in my agenda, it was, you know, a task that needed to get done. I love checking off things in my agenda. Yeah. So I knew if it was there, it would get done. And I think that that's something really important to remember. Mm. That's a good trick. I love that metaphor of the mountain. Yeah. I actually, so I write this blog on a blog and one of my blog posts was called my PhD, a mountain. Mm-hmm. And I had this realization of it's not just being hyper-focused on reaching the top of the mountain, but as you said, you know, people like the summit's going to be one moment, whatever, when you defend your PhD or your master's, whatever, but it's all those small moments. It's stopping at that viewpoint on a third of the way up, or it's the person you met. I think there's so many people we meet in our graduate experiences that are going to be the things that we remember and actually some of the most valuable things in our PhD or master's. Um, So I really like that, that metaphor. I think it's very accurate. Right. And you, and you know, in our graduate studies, I I find that we have just this constant stress of either performing or, you know, whatever, to finish a paper. It's just a generalized stress or it can, it can be anxiety if we don't know exactly where it comes from. But, you know, do, do, you, do you girls find that there's this underlying stress within us just constantly? And do we learn how to live with it or do we find ways to reduce it? Like what, what's the strategy? Yeah. For me personally, I think the stress comes from not really having a benchmark or not knowing what the standard is, because Mm -hmm. I think in undergrad, it's so straightforward of, okay, do this assignment and you'll get like a 95 if you follow the rubric. But in graduate school, there is no rubric and there is no standard. So all you have to go off of are your supervisor's comments, which sometimes aren't super objective. And uh, you have to keep on uh, assessing for yourself, like what is considered good research? You know, am I doing enough? And that's why I think a lot of grad students have imposter syndrome because they, mm-hmm. they feel like they're not enough and they don't know who to compare themselves to. Uh, so I think that's, that's one thing for me, the lack of benchmarking or, or standards. What about you, Rebecca? Yeah. I mean, I definitely relate exactly to what you were just saying, and I think that everyone goes through a period or potentially it's ongoing for, you know, for the whole degree, but I think that the way that I tried to tackle my imposter syndrome is to um, talk with other people in my lab or even, you know, friends that are going through, also going through their master's or going through their PhD at other schools and other labs, to know that I'm not the only person that feels like this. Mm-hmm. You know, all of, most of my friends, most of my lab mates have the same feelings as I do. And for me, it really helps to know that, you know, if we're feeling that feeling at the same time, we can talk about it. Again, not going into the negativity all the time, <laughs> yeah. but, right. you know, to to say, hey, I'm feeling like this really feels good to get it off your chest and to just put it out at the, in the open. And then, you know, if that lab mate also feels like that, you guys can work together, you know, during the day, you can text and be like, hey, how's it going? Just checking in with you. Hey, do you want to go for a walk? Obviously, two meters later, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So I think to check in to voice how you're feeling and to be totally transparent with people that surround you is something that helped me personally. Of course, I still feel imposter syndrome sometimes, mm-hmm. but I think that whenever I'm getting that little feeling, I have the tendency now to reach out to somebody to express that I'm feeling that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And also being honest with yourself. I feel sometimes that, you know, if I'm feeling a certain kind of way, I don't want to admit it to myself. You know, if I feel stressed on a, something that I find, okay, it's so ridiculous. Why am I stressed mm-hmm. about this? And I, I don't even admit it to myself. That I'm that I feel a certain way. Like I have this in French is a carapace, a certain like wall that you know is trying to protect myself. Never mind the people around me, but myself. Like I don't want to admit it to myself. So how am I going to be able to admit it to others if I can't admit it to myself that I'm 
yeah. I feel a certain way or I feel certain emotions. So there's, there's that internal aspect and external aspect mm -hmm. as well. But I think it all starts internal first. Mm -hmm. like, that awareness. Yeah. And again, I think you're not alone in that feeling. Um, and that sometimes you feel like, well, why am I stressing out or why am I anxious over this? It's so silly. I'm sure, yeah. you know, this person in my entourage wouldn't feel like that. But I think that to, another lesson that I've learned from my graduate studies is and during COVID is to be patient with yourself yeah. and to not always, you know, beat yourself down for, instead of why am I anxious about this being like, okay, why am I anxious about this? Even just changing your tone towards yourself and to not always be, you know, putting yourself down for feeling that way. You're, whatever emotion you're feeling is totally valid. And it's up to you to really go through that feeling you know, give yourself, I, sometimes I give myself an hour. I say, okay, I can be as sad as I want for an hour. <laughs> and then at the end of that hour, what am I going to do for myself to make myself feel better? Am I going to, you know, make a delicious snack? Am I going to go pet my cat, which is also a, mm -hmm. a good technique for Very me. therapeutic, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, do things like that so that I, I have my period to go through this emotion. But then at the end, I'm going to take action to feel better. Mm -hmm. And how does your relation, you say you're living with uh, someone... How does your how did COVID affect your relation with with that person? How did how did it help you or what was tell us more about that relation and how did how it helped you uh, through COVID? Um, it definitely I think for every couple it has you know there's ups and downs during COVID, um, and also we live in a space that has no closed bedroom, so it's an open space. So with you know. Um, working from home and, and, you know, if there's two meetings going on at the same time, mm -hmm. obviously you hear each other talking and the other people on Zoom call hear other people talking. So it can get, you know, there's a lot of scheduling and planning and, and patience with the other person, definitely. And I think that that's something that has come out of COVID and there's not only negative things that, that have come out of COVID. It's just my own personal opinion. Yeah. Um, but I think that I've developed a lot of patience and communication with my partner. Um, obviously COVID is, touchy subject and you know people have certain beliefs about whether they want to follow the rules or whether they're in agreement with the government and I think that you know whether you disagree or agree it doesn't matter sometimes you can just agree to disagree and say hey I know you have your opinion I have mine how can we come to a middle ground not necessarily to say oh I'm going to take your side but to say how can as as a household how can we make it work mm -hmm. for us together mm -hmm. so I think that that's the patience and communication is definitely what came up with COVID. Yeah, no, I love that. Very cool. Patience. Patience. Patience, and it could be patience with yourself, yourself. Yeah. patience with your yeah. entourage, patience with your partner, patience with your projects. Mm. Yeah, speaking about project, so I think you're in your second year of your master's, Rebecca. Uh, what is, where do you go from here? What are your hopes and dreams and plans for the next year? Um, I think to address your question, it would need to start before I came into my master's. Sure. Um, so when I first met Sonia, I, I knew that in my life plans, um, a PhD wasn't for me. Um, just because, you know, I knew that I was excited to start my career afterwards, um, but that I really wanted to explore a master's. Um, and also during my, my bachelor's, I was doing research in an animal model, and I, I wanted to explore human research. So I got to do that with Sonia. Um, but I knew that after I was really excited to start my, my next chapter in terms of a career. Um, so the two things that I've explored during my master's in terms of career options um, was something called the Agent de Planification de Programmation et de Recherche, or APPR. Mm -hmm. And essentially what an APPR does is they work in, for example, in a, in a CEUS, 
And, you know, let's say you um, hear from a teacher or you have a partnership with a teacher or school board, and you hear that there exists a certain issue within the classroom, within their students, let's say anxiety, for example. And so me as an APP on my side with my team, I'm going to look at the literature, see how we could, you know, address this issue and then potentially come up with recommendations and ways to help the teacher and then ultimately the students. So that was definitely something, a job that uh, I was really attracted to. Um, as well as uh, a lab coordinator. Um, we have a wonderful lab coordinator at our lab and seeing her do all the amazing work she does um, is something that I was also really attracted to. And so those two options are potential career paths for me. Interesting. And how, how is your relation with your supervisor and how does she guide you or inspire you to make decisions like this? Um, I would say Sonia is, she wants everyone to succeed at 110%. She, and I think that her way, her way of doing that is so unique in that she asks you what you want. What are your goals? And to every single one of our lab mates, she says, okay, what is, what is Rebecca's goal? What is this person's goal? And then in, in terms of that goal, she's really going to push you in different ways mm -hmm. to really make sure that at the end of your degree, whether it be a master's, a PhD, you really fall into, onto your X. I know it's a French expression. I don't know if it translates well into English, <laughs> but so that you get there at the end of the day. And I think that also something super valuable that I learned from Sonia was being able to communicate scientific information to the general public. Mm -hmm. And her knowledge translation abilities are absolutely excellent. And we see that with her interviews and her conferences and things like that. So I think that that was something that I'd never been exposed to before my experiences with Sonia. And I got to see that firsthand and from, from an expert, quite frankly. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I'll carry with me for the rest of my career. And the ability to, you know, tailor my, tailor my words, tailor how I express myself to different audiences to make sure that information is accessible to everyone, no matter what language you speak and no matter what level of education. Love it, love it. Well, I think you've done a great job of communicating your research on this yeah. podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's great. And so if we want to take a little more time to talk about stress, a lot of people who are listening to us, you know, still, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, stress in general, but what are the psychological or physiological factors that define stress? Like if somebody, how does somebody know they, they are going through a very stressful situation? Um, well, I think the physiological sensations are the things that we pick up on the most. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that you're, you feel your hat, hair may be standing on end, you're starting to sweat, you feel like you're really alert. Okay. Um, I think that those are the things that we recognize the fastest. Um, yeah. But a long term, you're not always going to have hair, you know, that, that, go, that goes up. Is, it, is there like a long term psychological, physiological factors as well? Or is it just well, the, short term? When, when your brain first detects a threat, you have your one of your one of your stress systems that activates quickest. And this one is the system that's going to be like, hey, we need to either get out of here or we need to fight um, the threat in front of us. Fear, flight, or flee. Right. Sorry? The f fight, free, or flight. Uh, <laughs> fight or flight? Fight or flight. <laughs> There's not a third one? Fight, I think flight, it's just fight or flight. Fight or flight or freeze. No? Freeze. Oh, freeze. No. Right. Yeah, freeze. There's there's a lot of research with animals that mm -hmm. show the freeze response, mm -hmm. um, but with humans, we in, in the lab we talk about uh, fight or flight. Mm. Awesome. So so like you were saying <laughs> that those are some. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if the if the threat is you know 
quick in front of us. We have our system that activates really quickly, you know, to help us with this threat. We have we have decisions to make face in, face with this threat. But if the um, threat persists, then we have a second system that activates, which is takes a little bit longer to activate than the first system, but it stays active a little bit longer. So this is where you have your cortisol that's going to come on board, and you have um, your stress response that can last a little, a little bit longer. So I like to compare it to a fire alarm. Mm -hmm. So in your you know in your apartment or your condo or wherever you have your unit fire alarm. So let's say you have a fire that goes off in your kitchen. That unit fire alarm is going to go off super fast. Mm -hmm. So that's your first system that's you know engaging right away to help you. But let's say you know um, the fire starts growing and it goes into the into the hallways. Well, then you're going to have your big system-wide apartment building alarm that's going to go off. So that's your second system because you know your threat is still there; it's still persisting. So you have your second system that's going to embark and it's going to help you um, again fight or uh, flee. And then the only way that that big alarm is going to go off is when your firefighters come and, you know, they, they turn off the alarm. Mm -hmm. So that's when you can have, you know, your belly breathing, your singing, your exercise. And that's really, they're going to act as your firefighters. They're going to come in, they're going to put your brake on your stress response and then you can come back to uh, equilibrium. And talk to us about what happens if you don't call the firefighters. Like what happens? I know people talk about stomach ulcers, they're losing their hair, you know, what are the consequences of not calling those firefighters, as you described? Yeah, well, we know that cortisol, so your hormone that's liberated with your second system, the one that takes a little bit longer, your, your building-wide fire alarm, mm -hmm. um, that hormone is actually fat-soluble. So it's able to travel up to the brain, cross through your blood-brain barrier, and actually go to areas such as your hippocampus and your frontal lobe. So it's actually going to go into areas where it can affect, for example, like memory and things like that. So... If you have stress, you know, if you have too much cortisol because you're chronically stressed, well, then you have the potential where those hormones are going to go up to your brain and go to those specific areas. So it's detrimental to your exams because you're Memory. not going to remember stuff. And it's so it becomes detrimental to your everyday life if it if that if cortisol goes to your brain, if I understand. Yeah, exactly. And then you can, again, coming back to the inverted you, if you have way too many hormones, you're going to end up on the side where, you know, you're maxed out, well, not maxed out, but you're on the higher end of your stress hormones that are in your system. So you're on the farther end of the inverted view, and that's where you start to get, you know, you're, you're blanking on your exam, um, you know, and, and where your stress is really going into the into the de-stress, mm -hmm. uh, distress end of the curve. And how do we prevent, you know, firefighters, they, they would come because there's an emergency, but in a house we would put alarm systems, you know, in the house to detect any potential fire. So what are the alarm systems or, you know, uh, monitors that we can have in our bodies or in our lives that can prevent fires from occurring? Um, I think that it's important not to, to recognize that we cannot prevent fires in the sense that stress and stressful situations in life are inevitable. Mm -hmm. And they're also good for us, you know, to have a little bit of stress, it, it, it motivates you to, you know, to, to get up in the day and, mm -hmm. and even things like, for example, a wedding, very stressful experience, but positive, right? So I think that um, to recognize that we can't get away from stress, and that's a good thing. We need stress. Mm -hmm. um, and to also, you know, um, in terms of recognizing, mm -hmm. like personally, I know that the physiological sensations are something that I recognize the fastest because they usually come on, on board the fastest. So to recognize, okay, right now my heart's beating a little bit faster, I'm breathing a little heavier, I'm sweating, why? What's, what's my mammoth? To really identify it. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, well, what can I do 
to, um, you know, break down this threat. Again, going back to the nuts, which aspects are present in this situation? And then once I identify those aspects, how can I reconstruct them? How can I break them down? What are my plans A, B, C, D, maybe even to Z if the stressor is really, is it, if it's a really big stressor for me? Mm-hmm. By writing it down, does that help as well? Like to break it down yeah. mentally, but also like actually writing it down, does that help? Yeah, definitely. We even on our uh, on our website of our laboratory, we have a little chart that one of our doctoral students uh, she made. That's like a, a cute little chart where you have all of the aspects of of nuts. It's available in French as well, um, and you can really write down each one of the aspects, and then you can start working on your on your plans A, B, C, D, uh, etc. Through that. Interesting. And what is that website? Can you tell us? Stress humain, stress humain, or human stress. Dot com. Yeah, or you can just write uh, Centre d'études sur le stress humain or Centre for Studies on Human Stress. And, uh, and you'll find all that, all that information. And I know you also have um, different tests or quizzes or evaluations on your website. Uh, I believe so. So next time you have a friend and they are trying to co-ruminate with you, you say, let's get this worksheet up and yeah. <laughs> work through the nuts factors. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. So I'm just, I'm, I also want to get through some, some myths. Does alcohol or coffee um, inflict anything or is it associated with a higher stress? You mean like if, if, if you take alcohol, yeah. leads to higher stress? Yeah, a lot of people say, okay, if you take alcohol, if you take coffee or too much of each, it would have an association with, you know, higher stress response. That's um, true. I, I know that when you consume caffeine, like you have, you know, your heart's going to start beating faster and maybe you can sweat, but I don't think that it's not really my domain of research. So I don't really have a an answer for that, but I don't think that we can say if, you know, if you have one glass of wine that you're going to, it's going to lead to a stressor. Uh, similarly for caffeine. Okay. And do you know a little bit more about stress eating? I know a lot of people these days stress eat. Do you stress eat, Vivian? Um, I try not to. No, I do. <laughs> you do, Justin? I, I do the opposite. I stress don't eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I'm stressed, I don't eat at all. Uh, but a lot of people I know stress eat and they start binging and eating a lot just to, to you know, try to compensate. Is that something that is um, popular? Or is it just me that I... Maladaptive coping yeah. technique. Is that, a maladaptive, that's a good question. is that a maladaptive coping technique? Um, I don't know if it's maladaptive, but I think that when you see your threat and you decide that your solution is to eat yeah. ice cream or whatever your, your choice is, um, I think that the solution is to deal with your emotion that you're feeling. It's to give you, let's say you're feeling anger, well, you want to try to you know comfort that anger with eating food, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to eat this delicious chocolate ice cream and I'm definitely going to feel better afterwards. But then after you eat that ice cream, you may be left with the same feelings of anger or you're still going to say like, well, hey, why was I angry before I ate my ice cream? And then you might start thinking about the emotion and then you might have to go back for a second batch of ice cream. <laughs> so I think that, you know, when you're feeling a certain emotion, I think that you can feel your emotion while you're eating. Like if you want to go eat a snack or eat ice cream, that's totally fine. But I think that you need to really address why you're feeling that stress and to really break it down and then to come up with all of your other plans. Mm-hmm. Eating ice cream can be within one of your plans, but how is that going to help you with one of your aspects right. of nuts? So mm-hmm. eating the ice cream is like a short-term approach. You have to eat the ice cream and then ask yourself the question, why am I stressed? And try to write it down. So ice cream is just like a way to 
you know, <laughs> open yourself up to be able to understand what's going on. Because sometimes you're so stressed that, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say now, but when you're so stressed, it's very hard to start thinking about where that stress comes from, right? So mm-hmm. maybe taking that little short-term step if it's, you know, looking at watching a Netflix episode, reading a book, going for a walk, um, breathing techniques, ice cream, you know, it's okay to do those things. It's encouraged maybe just, to, you know, to do that, those short-term things, just to be able to, you know, identify what's stressing you. Because, you know, when we're stressed, when we're in that moment, everything is, seems so fuzzy and hazy that, we, you know, we have to get out of that cloud to be able to give us a little bit perspective on things Mm -hmm. yeah definitely awesome so rebecca it's been a pleasure to have you on our show thank you for having me it's been really very interesting conversation i think our our audience is going to take notes because we're all super stressed (laughs) stress is not always a bad thing (laughs) we just need to know how to manage it it's the balance of of it that's the main thing i think the main takeaway is that you have to balance you know, the, our lives are balance uh, is a continuous balance, but our stressful situations have to be you know balanced as well. So we ha- we learned about techniques. We learned about breaking it down into breaking breaking down, factors and coming up with a solution. Not co-ruminating with your friends, taking turns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to add, Rebecca, before we we leave? <clears throat> Um, I think that coming back to my mountain example Mm -hmm. is something that I want to reiterate and is something that in terms of advice that I would give is is really to remember your lookout points on your mountain and to not only see the peak when you're standing at the bottom. Um, And I think also another piece of advice that I would give is to push your boundaries Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Personally, as an Anglophone, I decided to study at the University of Montreal for the first time studying in French. Um, but I knew that it would bring me a plethora of incredible experiences. I would not only improve my second language, but I would be put in unique situations where, you know, for example, to give um, a presentation in French or to participate in a competition, you know, presenting my research in French. Um, so I think that that's something really important throughout graduate studies and even throughout life is to continue pushing your boundaries, you know, obviously not putting in a situation where you're completely uncomfortable. But to really test yourself and to push yourself. And I think that through doing that um, and through studying at the University of Montreal, working with Sonia, um, gave me experiences that I would have never gotten otherwise. Beautiful. A lot of people, a lot of people are hesitant to take that step. A lot of people just want to keep, you know, if, if they if they're French, they're gonna stay in French schools, if they're English, they're gonna stay in English schools. How how was that transition for you? Did you was it hard in any way? Do you recommend it? 100% recommend it. Would be lying to you if I said it wasn't hard. <laughs> um, especially taking class, not only you know being in a lab and, and learning all the all the lingo and the vocabulary in French, but also to learn and take classes and, and do well. Um, so it was my first semester, and it was one of my first classes was a, a statistics class. So I had to you know learn all the terms in French, and so it was definitely hard. Definitely put in extra hours. Um, pro tip: record your lectures, listen to them again. Um, you know, and take notes at your own speed so that you don't feel like in the class if you don't necessarily understand a term, it's not like it's completely gone forever. Um, So yeah, definitely difficult, but totally worth it. I think that I've done better in a French environment, a French school than I did um, in the Anglophone system. So I think that it was just because I I decided, hey, I'm going to push myself, I'm motivated to do so, and the sky's the limit. 
Mm. I love that attitude. I love that. It's a it's a challenge that you put yourself. Yeah. You know, it's not a stressful exactly. situation. Stress. It was yeah. a challenge. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, thank Rebecca, so for being much, with Rebecca. us and lots of wise words um, that you shared today. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you to both of you.